0: The business side of things actually is the driver to do all that fun stuff that we ultimately want to do in the end. And so that was a learning process for me and I think all of us. What I do admire about us and Bull and I have a few other partners as well is we've all done this together as a team and we've learned along the way we've made plenty of mistakes you know i chased a lot of shiny objects in the beginning cuz i thought that they were cool but we've really i want to say we've matured over time and we've grown the company to withstand things like a global pandemic and to not panic when there's diversity that hits us in some way and how do we you know be stay resilient with that and pivot and use those things as an opportunity to grow the firm. And that's kind of where we are now that, and you would have told me, you know, 19 months ago or however long the pandemic's been that, you know, this would be a great opportunity for us. I would have told you that's impossible. There's no way, you know, the world's ending. But we we pivoted there and stayed positive the entire time. And it's been actually a good thing for us. Welcome to a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies and tactics they use to run great organizations.
1: Today, we're very excited to be joined by Christian Giordano and Balanle williams Ollie of Mancini Duffy for a fireside chat. Christian is driven by a quest for learning with 25 years of experience. Christian is host of the Anti-Architect podcast. He's reimagining the building industry with a progressive approach as president and co owner of Mancini Duffy, a 105 year old New York based architecture and design firm. In 2020, he completely revolutionized the design process as the inventor of the patent pending The Tool Belt, mm-hmm. which is a software suite that allows users to explore and manipulate 3D models collaboratively in VR to make decisions together. Balanle Williams-Ali is chief financial officer and co-owner of Mancini Duffy, a technology-first design firm. She is a dynamic leader within the built industry and the founder of several impact organizations. She's also number one best-selling author of Build Boldly, Chart Your Unique Career Path, and Lead with Courage. You can purchase your own copy on Amazon right now. And with that, thank you very much, Christian and Balanle. And Also, thank you very much, Sylvia, from the Monograph team for joining this conversation today.
2: Thank you. Thank you,
1: guys. Yeah. What an intro. Absolutely. And and thanks, everybody, for joining. I see that more have joined the the conversation. Please put your uh, questions in the chat or in the Q&A. We'd love to get to those in the last 15 minutes of the conversation. So let's start with, and these questions are for the both of you, what does a technology first design firm look like? Yeah, I mean, a technology-first
0: design firm really looks like a very collaborative environment and more so than the previous way that you'd think of an architecture firm, sort of people pinning up and you know looking at drawings or sketching on things. It really is an integrated process that starts with design, but design within in our case Revit or Rhino and it's pushed through a a software that we've developed called the tool belt. And that gives a completely interactive way of working. So you have to imagine that, I, I guess if I were to think about it, it's actually not too dissimilar to how you used to work. If you're kind of all standing around sketching, but in this case, we're sketching in the computer, but we're doing it interactively with our clients. So we invite the client into the process from day one or even before day one if it's a sort of a pre-lease situation or a site plan situation and they come into our office uh, obviously pre-pandemic it was always coming into our office but now you know post-pandemic we can do everything virtually as well we've adapted the software for that but essentially everybody comes in you're in our design lab which is a, an r d facility room and you've got in there the entire team from the project manager to the project designer to the, the technical uh, architects on the job. And then we also have the developer, actual software developer that is also sitting in the room. And that developer is sort of the eyes and ears and listening to what's going on. And as you know, the user is making changes or making suggestions or the designer is asking to iterate on something, that developer is kind of working within our software to kind of push these changes through immediately. So it's a very seamless process from, you know, sketching all the way through to a a virtual reality or a 3D experience. And it happens instantaneously. It's happening at the exact same time that it's being done.
3: Christian has said it all, but I think about it to add, you know, especially for me, who is not an architect, right? Like, so my viewpoint is, really looking at how we are using technology or leveraging technology to help us push our design process, our viewpoint, and also push the profession, right? So like our peers can see how we are designing and then they can also be challenged to to thinking about their own process and thinking about how they can apply technology to improve their own way too. So for me, it's really and truly leveraging leveraging the technology to set our own Mancini way.
0: Yeah, and if I were to kind of look back, you know, 30,000 feet as where do we want to see that where a technology first architecture firm go, it really needs to carry beyond just the design process and into the construction process as well. And I've, I've said before, you know, one of the silliest things I think that we do is we put all of this effort into creating our 3D model and you know every little thing is figured out and specified and even today we did a client review and we were walking through the 3d model it's all there and in the end we still just flatten it out and print it on a bunch of pieces of paper and then hand it over to a contractor and say hey okay you know build this from these drawings and there's a real disconnect in there and that to me is where we really are trying to now push the, the beyond just the design process, which has been amazing, but into now the delivery process and then ultimately the construction process.
1: How
2: do you think the role of the architect will change as this design process changes now that you have more voices in the mix early on? And then how do you steer the design process maintaining the control throughout the project?
0: So as far as it, I think that it changes the speed in which things can occur. But that doesn't necessarily mean, and I try to convince our clients of this all the time. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change the speed in which things get done, because of the. I think the way architects work has really changed almost more so in the past 10 years than it did in the in the previous let's call it 50 years, because as the advent of the computer really began to take hold, and I'm not talking about AutoCAD, because AutoCAD really was just a mimicking of hand drawing. So when you get into now 3D modeling, probably 10 years ago or so. So what happens is the role of the architect changed because the speed of which the clients want the job complete really got accelerated in the last 10 years. So. I can't tell you a project that we've started that on day one, after winning the job, they, that the client has said to us, well, we're already behind schedule. So we needed to figure out a way of speeding that process up. And so by getting buy-in early on and inviting the client into that process, we can make decisions a lot faster along the way. And ultimately, You know, now if it's going to take three weeks to get a task done, maybe we can get a lot of that decision making done with the meeting time and now spend the next three weeks actually designing it and thinking it through and developing it a little bit further. And then when we get into construction drawings, the design is more complete than it was in the past. I think what's happened is that because of that schedule speed, it's really changed the way that architects work because they're always sort of catching up or never getting enough out the door to make it complete enough.
1: I'd love to hear from Balanla, your, your perspective as the delivery model is changing of these services where things are moving much faster. How, from the finance team perspective, um, has anything changed? You, you have a career looking at project accounting from right on the ground with the project team all the way now overseeing operations across the whole Uh, a whole organization. What's your perspective on this change of delivery?
3: Yeah, so I mean, from the finance perspective, right? um, When you're looking at projects, you're looking to see if the project ends up being profitable, right? And if now that we're doing things differently, um, are we seeing less time spent on projects or are projects being done a bit more efficiently? so that the bottom line then either aligns with what Christian had said or like what the project manager had said at start. And what we are noticing is that it's improving, right? So when you see, you can see some PMs either tracking that effort separately, and what that effort is doing is then informing how we approach new projects, right? So the benefits, you might not see it at the very beginning, like when we first started doing all of this, there was an investment piece of it from the firm to say, one, we have to convince our clients that <laughs> this is now how we're working. It doesn't cost you more money. This is the value add. This is how it translates into on the numbers side. But then now it's now helping us make better informed decision in the sense that we're now putting more projects from the beginning into this process, right? You are seeing less, sometimes you might be able to see less additional services, right? Because you're able to be thrown into this virtual reality space quite early on, and you can see your model, you know, your project very early on. So the things that, for example, um, you might not catch until construction administration, right? We are, we are sort of reducing um, the number of ad services that you might have to request. So that's where you would see it on the financial side, right? One, are you able to, uh, are your projects still ending more profitable? Is it costing us more, more or less? For us, it's improving, right? Because again, there's an efficiency part of it that is, that we are now noticing or tracking. And so for us, it's it's now easier for, for us to tie that or add that into our conversations when we are pitching to our clients. Yeah. The value add from a dollar's perspective, right? Because a client can see that and say, well, how much is this really going to cost me? You're doing like all this fancy stuff. Is it going to cost me more? But we are saying, no, this is just part of our process.
2: Right. I imagine that um, having a really strong team at Mancini is crucial in developing and hiring the good, a certain kind of, what are you looking for when you are hiring and growing your teams? And how do you want to make sure that your teams are part of the equation to a successful project?
0: Honestly, that's the most important part because as much as the technology kind of pushes things forward and the design process pushes things forward, it's only as good as the, obviously, the designers that we have, the technical people that ultimately put the job together. And then the attitude of everybody in the room right and so we really try to concentrate on you know what we call a players or you know, obviously team players but i think it's a little bit different than that we also are looking for people so so i mean i i always learn don't be the smartest in the room and i am by far the dumbest in the room and mancini there are no so he's, many he don't mind him that's not true <laughs> There there are so many brilliant people here that, you know, just have amazing ideas. And so as important as it is to be a great team player and a great designer, and all of those things, it's just as important to have your own ambitions. And, And that's really what we're looking for when we hire people. So if there's an idea that someone has, a passion that someone has, and I've always said, I don't care if it has anything to do with architecture or design, we will support it in some way. And that's really how this whole R&D facility occurred, is that people had different ideas and passions. I mean, someone wanted to really work on 3D printing, and and so we developed a real strong 3D printing aspect of 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 our practice that's not about printing little cute models of our buildings. It's about actually what we call a micro factory, bringing the 3D printer to the site, and printing part of the final product that's actually there, whether it's hung on the wall or part of the an art installation or a light fixture. We've done a few of those. So it's about, well, what is it that makes you tick? And what do you want to do with your career beyond just architecture? And we want to hear about it and support you. We have one guy that had an idea for this automated lawnmower. It didn't go anywhere. It turns out there's already one on the market, but we went down that road and we looked to see how we could maybe develop it. Right. I mean, I always felt that the the education of an architect or interior designer, anyone in this profession, it's such a broad, strong education. And it's so creative that there are so many other things that could come out of what a typical architecture firm does. And that's what we're looking for most when we hire people.
3: Yeah. I mean, for us, I think what gets us excited when we're interviewing is that it's your unique selling point, right? Like, how are you standing out? How are you representing yourself? How are you speaking to your strengths? Because, and also there's a a character bit to it, right? So like Christian had mentioned, we look at eight players, because if you have a strong character, there's a lot that can be learned with the right support, right? So Really, it's it's more so about you, you the person, and how are you interested in being the CEO of your own career here at Mancini, right? So you're charting your own path. I have to plug in <laughs> plug in the book subtitle, right? You're, you're, you're charting your own path, but like really still plugging into the entire team, right? Because you're plugging into the vision of the company. You have buy-in into what myself, Christian, and the other partners and everyone in leadership is really trying to do here. Right. And so those two things for me are really important. Right. And also we look for people who, you know, you have an interest in something you want to explore, even professionally. Maybe you're not there. I use myself always as an example. Um, When I joined Mancini, I was a senior project accountant. I probably uh, would not have the title or the exponential growth that I had if when I met with Christian, he didn't say, let's give it a shot. Right So you might not necessarily be ready, but if there are things that we see that can be nurtured within you to prepare you for whatever role it is that you're applying for you want to take on here, those are the people that um, are of interest to us, right, But it's not shielding yourself but really like pushing further into who you are and speaking to us about it. that's what gets us excited when we meet with people
1: for the both of you, especially Christian, when you took on this challenge to like reinvigorate Mancini at that 105 I actually it'd be interested to know like what years old was Mancini when you stepped in to introduce a whole new breath of velocity I'm just so curious because it you get the sense that the firm has this speed going on that feels like it wasn't really natural you know like it's on purpose it's purposeful it was invigorated it it was like There was like a trigger event i'd love to hear more about what was the before and after and how did you do it on purpose
0: yeah sure so it was about 10 years ago and that's when i came over i worked at another firm uh, before that called hlw international a large international firm uh that's actually how i know uh bola and you know when i came over it was really a almost like an off-handed comment that was made to me. And, and, and that's really what got me here was I met Ralph Mancini and they were looking for, uh, they were looking for someone in their under 40 years old, that's what they told me, I was under 40 at the time, to come in and really bring some youth and energy into a firm that was frankly, a little stale. And the firm's owners at the time, who I, I love dearly, Tony Sharipa and Dina Frank, At the end of their career, they had just gone through the recession of 2008, and the firm was very, very much a very monolithic interior design firm. I mean, we designed high-end interior design for financial services firms. That was pretty much 90% of the revenue that came in here. And 2008 hurt. It really came in, and you know that was the market that crashed. Of all the things, right? And so it was very tough to kind of begin to rebuild that. And I think as the market came back, they did begin to start to diversify and bring in other work. However, it just took a while. So I come along, and that's kind of how it was positioned to me: was that you would come in and you'd be able to kind of do what you wanted in a, in this old architecture firm. And I knew Mancini Duffy. I knew Mancini. Very well. It's a very well well known firm in in New York City, and you know I thought, all right, well that's an interesting challenge. I loved my time at HLW. I'm still very friendly with a lot of those people there, but this seemed like the, really the the next real logical step, and really to propel my career. And so I jumped in and came here, and it was a lot of work. I will say, you know, kind of reinventing a firm. I, to Tony and Dina's credit, they they got out of the way, but there had been some. I don't want to say damage, but there had been some. You know, market kind of people had said, well, I'm not sure if is going to be around for a long time. They knew Ralph had retired. Ralph Mancini, the founder, had retired a long time ago, and kind of was stumbling along. And so there was that to overcome. By the way, yes, we are still, I think it was 40 people and you know everything's okay here. We still have a lot of projects. And then it began to just kind of chip away. And it started, honestly, with celebrating the smallest of victories. Every time we won a little job that was a little bit different for the company, we celebrated. And every time we hired someone new, we celebrated. And it really became sort of beginning as a family to get everyone here to to think of themselves as a family and that everyone was in this together. And I think that's what kind of started our resurgence in a sense.
3: And I think, you know, you hear the word family and sometimes people don't like to, you know, use that in professional settings, but frankly, we spend too much time together (laughs) at work, right? You know, you're you spend 40 hours plus depending on the season in the project (laughs) And after a while, you know, like keeping it strictly professional or not really like, you know, showing concern for the people in your team becomes weird, right? I think as I say that, um, it says people want a leader who's real than a leader who's right all the time. And so if you're real with your teams, you are understanding where they're coming from. Um, you are paying attention to the things that interest them, you are concerned with their growth professionally also, you know, if it is they just want to focus on architecture, right? When you start to create those things, I think you see that tie change, right? Like you begin to find your tribe or you find the people who want to work at companies like this. And for me, it's just, you just spend too much time together not to interact that way.
2: In your book, Bill um, Boldly, I was reading how when you became CFO, you wanted to become the leader that you wanted to be not just following someone else's playbook but then also not getting too stuck in your playbook so set in the ways can you share some experiences where you set out on a path but then changed it as you saw um, what was needed at the time and maybe in both of your experiences what you started trying out on and then how you adapted along the way Yeah,
3: yeah. So when I joined Mancini, I came from Skidmore, Wins and Merrill, right? So two vastly different types of organizations in size, in in types of projects that we do. But um, one of the things that I really appreciate about my experience at SOM is sort of like the rigor in which we looked at finances, um, looked at AR. And so the example I'll give is I think when I came, you know, some of the methodology in which we looked at our accounts receivables, I tried to uh, implement that here. Very, very helpful. We still use it, right? So every single week I meet with the project managers to go over AR just to get a status pulse on what's outstanding, where are things, um, have you heard anything from the client? Do you have any changes? Now, the way in which I initially presented the information was almost like, you know, from my Skidmore uh, background, you know, like we are, you're projecting out, I don't know how many months. However, I quickly realized that doesn't necessarily, or oh, that method or way of looking that far out wasn't really working for us. One, because there was a knowledge gap, right? My project managers here are just beginning to um, get used to being, um, reporting this information in a habit or forming this rhythm. And so I had to essentially scale back. I'm like, Okay, why? Uh, Maybe we're not looking at three months. Maybe we're looking at one month. Right. Just tell me a month. Right. And so for me, when you do that, especially when you're introducing a new habit that gets people uh, adapting a little bit uh, faster or easier or getting more comfortable with it just because they were not exposed to reporting on that level before. And so that's one of the ways in which I had to now like uh, change course. Right. To cater like still have some of the structure from there, but cater to the folks that I was working with. And also even like my internal team too, right? So my team also wasn't used to having to like produce certain reports for me. And so I had to scale back. You start small and then as you're, as people are getting used to it, then you can begin to improve on it and course correct. So those are two examples <laughs> of of ways in which, yes, I I was like gun ho like we are going to do this and then you have to be um, flexible in your approach.
0: Yeah, and for me, I learn every day. I came into, you know, the leadership role here. I was running an architecture studio at at HLW. I was doing a lot of things with a team, but not an entire firm. And it was a very different mindset and it's a very... um, At some point, you begin to understand the weight of it, especially when you take on the the ownership role that, you know, everyone here, not only are you responsible for them, their families, their health insurance, their paychecks, whatever else they have going on in their life, their careers, what they want to do with their careers. So it becomes a little overwhelming in the beginning, I will say. But, you know, you kind of work through that and I had help along the way, and I'll say you know we hired a coach early on a business coach that coach really helped us with a structure and a way to a system that ultimately could help us expand and we followed that system and still to this day follow a lot of aspects of that system that i think keep us organized and just how the leadership team came about and then ultimately grew to where i think we have a fantastic leadership team now and then setting the vision right and the vision was yeah, we want to do all this cool stuff with technology, but it was a little bit more than that. It was really, well, what do we want to be when we grow up, right? In terms of even just revenue. Again, coming from the design side of architecture, I didn't know what revenue was. I mean, okay, I knew money comes in and money goes out, but whatever. But you very quickly begin to understand how important The revenue is that's going to drive everything that you do. So the business side of things actually is the driver to do all that fun stuff that we ultimately want to do in the end. And so that was a learning process for me and I think all of us. What I do admire about us and Bull and I have a few other partners as well is we've all done this together as a team and we've learned along the way we've made plenty of mistakes you know i chased a lot of shiny objects in the beginning because i thought that they were cool i want to say we've matured over time and we've grown the company to withstand things like a global pandemic and to not panic when there's diversity that hits us in some way and how do we you know be stay resilient with that and pivot and use those things as an opportunity To grow the firm, and that's kind of where we are now. That and you would have told me, you know, 19 months ago, or however long the pandemic's been, that you know this would be a great opportunity for us. I would have told you that's impossible. There's no way, you know, the world's ending. But we pivoted there and stayed positive the entire time, and it's been actually a good thing for us.
3: Yeah, I like to call us a a startup firm. With you know, we have legacy, but essentially, you know, myself, Christian, and all the partners, Bill, Scott, uh, Jessica it's almost like a startup, right? Like we are taking this company and like now defining what our own legacy is going to be real time, right? We are constantly working on it. And, and like Christian has said, I think the last year and a half has been a test <laughs> for all of us um, in terms of one, I think the last time, maybe a lot of us, experienced something like this was the financial crisis where we were employees. And then now we're now in a leadership position where you're the one having to like corral and guide the firm through. (laughs) It's been incredible how we've been able to power through. And that really is because we see ourselves as family, especially in leadership, right? So we're working professionally, but we're also like just carrying each other through all these decisions that we have to make.
1: Speaking of your leadership team, I was saying before this chat that There's this amazing episode where you bring a bunch of different partners from your team together to introduce the anti-architect podcast i think it's episode one and it's a great conversation i encourage everybody to go check it out and you know including the other podcasts as well but at the end there's this great question that christian asks which is what am i not good at and i love balanle's response where uh you say something like um he's like santa claus you're like santa claus you Sometimes you give too much. And <laughs> she
0: called me that the other. She called me that. Yes, was it yesterday? <laughs> no, I,
3: I've I've now changed it. I said he's like Oprah. He's like okay. you get a car, you get a car. Like that's Christian now.
1: <laughs> well, what I wanted to follow on with that is Christian then goes on to say this great thing, which is I'm trying to make it happen that the minimum salary is two hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> and I want to go a little bit further on that because I want to ask like what needs to happen as a business for something like that to occur? Like what is blocking the current market or business model and how might that happen in the next five years?
0: Yeah, I mean, what's blocking it, frankly, is the architecture profession sells hours and not value, right? So it really is always a drive down in price over and over again. So you get more but you pay less for it. And our other partner, Bill and I, we always say how when we started in this profession, that in New York City, if you took a corporate interiors job, typical straight up corporate interiors job, you were probably getting around, you know, let's call it $5 a square foot for an interior. And in New Jersey, it was $4 a square foot. Well, today, you're probably getting about $4 a square foot and $5 a square foot in New York. And it can vary here and there. Unfortunately, it usually varies further down, yet people are making obviously substantially more. I mean, 25 years ago, I was probably making $35,000 and, you know, or a, a starting designer was making that. And now, you know, that's obviously not a starting salary. And I don't begrudge that at all, but the market has stayed very, very, I don't even want to use the competitive, but just hours driven. So the the way to get to that, honestly, is working more efficiently, working smarter. And that's where we go back to the technology side. It's getting everybody on board to make a decision early on and to push the process through. So when I'm designing, I'm also creating the construction documents. Oh, and by the way, I'm also creating the thing that's going to be delivered to the contractor in the end, if we can connect that entire process seamlessly and everybody works together as a team rather, and that's a little bit of what my podcast has become about when I when I talk to other engineers or project managers, it's about getting everyone on the same page. There are some outstanding, if everyone worked in the way that, you know, the other deliver, project delivery methods are like IPD, we could get to everybody getting a $200,000 base salary because everyone's sharing in the profits of those particular projects. They're not purposely driving down to be the lowest common denominator that they can be. That's certainly one way that that we can we can get there. But the entire profession has to move yeah. towards yeah. that. It can't just be a few, right? And it can only be the you know, the black cape, you know, star architects, whatever we call them these days that are doing that kind of thing. And ironically, they don't pay as well as probably Mancini Duffy does. <laughs> the reason I said that on the podcast is because and I truly appreciate, Bola knows this, I truly appreciate everyone that works with us. I genuinely, I'm always amazed that they want to come and work for us. Not because we're not great and all of those things, but I'm just very grateful that, that people are willing to spend their time and energy with us. There's so many yeah. options out there, right? And I want to be able to show that and pay that back. And that was really the the idea behind that. I've, I've mentioned it a few times, but yeah, <laughs> but I am Santa Claus, I guess. So. No,
3: no, honestly, I mean, besides my Santa Claus comments, right? Somebody has to be the, the, myself and Bill, our CEO, we're like the, gatekeepers. Yes, but, Bill calls um, himself
0: the fun killer.
3: <laughs> Bill, yeah, Bill is the fun killer, Christian <laughs> Santa Claus. So while, you know, maybe we're not able to pay everybody $200,000, we do try to look for ways quite early on, actually, even frankly, even before the pandemic, look for ways in which we can stand out, you know, outside of your base salary. As a company, we, you know, did something called a vacation stipend, right? Where we gave employees a a little stipend, not to vacation in your house, but like to actually go somewhere because we want our employees to plug out, right? So wellness is important to us because you're not going to be able to do all this great design and great work that you're um, capable of doing if you're constantly burnt out. Yes, there are times on projects that are just busy. But we thought, OK, how can we monetarily you know, give something to our employees to take vacation? A big thing for me was flexibility, right? Like, So how are you catering to young mothers uh, who also still have ambition and still have passion to, to move up in their career, right? Where you're not making them make a choice. And so Christian will tell you, and I think I talk a bit about this in the book, like in our interview, I was like, Christian, let's forget about the job. Let's talk about the firm's policy on family, right? Like I have two little ones who I think at that point in time, they were four and two. I was like, I need to be able to drop my kids off at school. I need to be able to be present, you know, like the things that were important to me then, like, is the organization going to support me? And his answer was like, are you kidding me? Of course, <laughs> you know, like it helped for me to have partners or at that point in time, a, a boss, right? Before, before Christian and I became partners, a boss who cared about things like that. Right. And so like things like that are ways in which, you know, one, maybe it's not financial, but they're, you're getting other things that add up that have financial value, right? Or it's time value that money can buy to make working here uh, great for employees, you know?
1: I wanna ask actually about the, so Balanle, the double promotion, and then Christian like going on to lead a firm for the first time, you know? And because we're kind of talking about like team, building a team and the idea that like, there are people out there in the market who will may end up being capable beyond what they're currently doing. So in your case, like, you know, stepping up two levels or stepping up to run a whole firm, who are the other people in the market right now that the existing organizations don't recognize their capability? But for example, Mancini Duffy might take them up, you know, might bring them, might raise them up into the the role that they really can achieve. And are you seeing that across other staff members in your team as well, where you're pulling, maybe it's not like a one-to-one connection, but it really is like a diagonal movement up in their career through Mancini.
0: There are several here at Mancini that, you know, really catapulted, you know, if you want to call it through the ranks, right? Um, They skipped a bunch of steps, just like, like Bola did right there. They jumped from associate to principal. And in certain circumstances, I didn't see a reason to, you know, have a formality about it. It was these people, have shown such initiative and such a drive and really in the mission and vision of what we're doing that they needed to know themselves and the entire firm and you know community needed to understand that you know these are the people and there's a reason why they're they're getting promoted or whatever it might be and they've also come you know they've never asked for anything either. They've only ever said, these are the things that I see that can be improved, or this is where I think we should do something new, or I have an idea for this. And that's where we came up with this idea of entrepreneurialism, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you're working in here and you've got something that you want to say or do, you know, we're all for it. So yeah, if there's anybody out there that you know, your firm that you're at isn't, you know, listening or they don't want to listen. And listen, there's many reasons why, and I don't fault other firms. There's many reasons why people aren't going to move up, right? And, or can't move up. There's, you know, obligations and financial obligations and all sorts of things that behind the scenes, you never know, you know, what's going on with the leadership of your company. But one thing you can do is ask, Um, and, and really the the way that my ownership came about at Mancini was I asked, I had said to Tony Sharipa, I mean, the idea I was running the place, we were doing all these great things. I had a small bit of ownership, but I said to him, Hey, you know, I would like to own this firm one day. How do I do that? And he said, well, make me an offer. He literally said that. And the next day, I came in with a written offer as to how I was going to buy the firm from him. And he accepted it. And I've said this on another podcast where I, I said, You never know if you don't ask for it. You've got, you know, you don't need to be a jerk. You don't need to be overly aggressive, but ask, Hey, what are the plans here? Or, Hey, this is what I think I can do to bring to this organization. Is there an opportunity for me here to do that? And if they say yes, great. If they say no, come on over to, to us.
1: <laughs> Got a question coming in here from the audience. Mancini has pivoted its focus as a practice. How do after action reports or project reviews, like doing a project autopsy, uh, how does that play into the approach for new work?
0: So we're always, Bola can talk about it from the financial side, but we're, <laughs> we're always analyzing what we do, right? What worked? What didn't work? Why didn't it work? Or hopefully, if it's not working, that's called to our attention early on and we can take corrective action and measures to, to, to fix that sort of thing. We are getting better at keeping the metrics of all of our projects now that we've been especially been doing this in our new design process now for a number of years, trying to understand where we're spending the right time, where we're not, how it's getting analyzed, and then how we're disseminating that back to the staff. I will tell you that one thing that we've done, like any, it doesn't matter if you're a technology forward focused architecture firm or a very traditional sort of studio based firm, you've got to staff your projects properly with the right people. We've finally, after now probably you know six, seven years, we finally have a staffing procedure that really works. And it really comes down to like anything, communication, sitting in a room, whether it's a virtual people joining, kind of however they're going to participate in that room. And one single point of contact for the entire firm that is in charge of staffing. And we've given, it's actually a younger principal at the firm, we've given him that ability. And even me, Bill, whoever else running projects and bringing in work has to go through him. I am not allowed to walk up to someone in the studio and say, hey, I have this project. I need you to work on it. It's just not allowed. Everything has to go through him. And that creates an efficiency that helps.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, from the financial aspect, there are two ways in which you can uh, look at things, right? My favorite, of course, is as it's happening, so you can course correct. And that's where the financial rhythm of looking at your earnings report every single month to see how you're progressing in the phase against what you had projected or against what you think it's going to happen, you know, in terms of staffing. That's how you really tell the full picture, right? That's how you course correct early on. And so a perfect example is, let's say you're in SD, you have your fee, you've gone over your fee, and you're about to move into DD, right? If you're not able to recoup that fee, you have to now look at uh, future phases to see how you can minimize the overage in SD. So that's how you would approach it or like course correct during the course of the project. At the end of the project, it's really like looking at where you started off and where you ended and what really happened. So for me, the numbers inform a lot of the questions that I ask the project managers through the life of the project. But then when we get to the end, you know, for leadership or Christian, whoever else is going after now new work, it's like, okay, in this sector, is there a pattern or is this our strength, right? If we were able to come up even more profitable than we thought we had projected, what did we do right from a numbers perspective, and then how can how can that inform how we price the next project that we're going for? Or if we did not do well, really happened was it our, our issue? Was it the client's issue? Right, like so, all of those things help spur the types of questions that we ask ourselves or the team, you know, asks of each other, especially when they're doing like a lessons learned or a launch or learn where you're going through what worked, what didn't work. And then that can help, you know, like know what markets to go into or how to price it or price it better. Sounds the market like knocking down your (laughs) fee. but it gives you so much information. So for me, I mean, I don't have to know the details, but the numbers tell me a lot, right? Oh, did we staff it right? Did we really need, we staffed only two people, but we really needed four people for this effort. Okay. So going into the next project, we have to figure out how to staff it properly. You know, so those are the ways where doing a project autopsy as the life of the project unfolds. And even at the end, it's really, really critical in terms of, you know, how it affects your bottom line.
0: We also share everything with the firm. We share the financials. We show it quarterly for good or for bad. And I think that helps everyone, again, with like a buy-in and a common, you know, goal and, and seeing and this is where my effort went to. This is what the profit that was made. And this is where it went, ultimately.
3: Yeah, that, that's how you just keep engagements, I think.
2: I also heard you talk about the numbers in a way that understanding and knowing these numbers gives you a peace of mind. And I really appreciated you talking about that. Would you like to elaborate a little more?
3: Yeah. Um, so running a business, right, there's a huge wellness piece to it, like like we've said. And if you don't understand where your numbers stand, you're not going to be able to sleep at night. I mean, granted, if it's even bad, at least if you're sleeping, you kind of know where everything is. You're not walking blindly. And so that's where that statement comes from, right? Like if I know exactly what the numbers are telling me or if I'll give an example, even from a cash perspective, right? If my job is to make sure that come Friday, my employees need to get paid and I don't understand what the firm's cash position is, I'm not going to have peace of mind, right? I need to be able to know how to either quickly course correct what decisions we need to make as leadership or if things are great, you know, I need to be able to understand these things for me to have for myself and Christian (laughs) uh, to have peace of mind, right? And the peace of mind is one, knowing that you can take care of your responsibilities. And two, that, um, you know, the firm is not going to like die out all of a sudden (laughs) because we run out of cash or there's a situation that has come up. So consistently, I think that's the word I want to use, consistently paying attention to things that are happening on a project level, on a firm level, brings that peace of mind. We do it with our personal finances. Some people maybe, maybe not. But I treat it the same way, right? If I care about my money, I need to be able to care about the firm's money so I can have peace of mind and see well.
1: You both seem to have one foot in architecture, one foot in outside uh, industries, in business or in just other, other kind of disciplines too. What reference points do you feel like other architects might want to listen into a little bit more to get a better sense for what's coming in the future. And, you know, what era are we in now? <laughs> and maybe some of the, the most powerful ideas that have driven your career that and, and where they came from.
3: I mean, for me, like you said, I, I call myself a multi-hyphenate, right? Like I have a lot of interests. I have, you know, a passion of giving. I consider myself one who's very service-driven too. And so Through all these different initiatives that I've started, that helps. So, example, maybe even with like my nonprofit and trying to build schools in Nigeria, right? Me bringing that conversation into the day job or to Christian helps the projects that I'm working on back in Nigeria, right? So, I am literally in the built industry and I'm trying to build schools in another country, and so I can lean onto. Christian's expertise, or like his connections or his network, when I'm trying to fundraise to help these projects I'm working on. But what that does is just show me the need of other folks who are in low-income communities, or it helps. When I say it helps, um, it helps me appreciate a lot of the privileges that I have. But it shows me that we need to be giving more to these communities. We need to some way, somehow, in our in our professional lives, find ways in which we keep giving back to people, right? So we can just be working, just be doing our nine to fives, but we are all responsible for caring about everyone, right? So that's one of the ways or one of the things that I see in like my nonprofit that I bring to them. Like it helps me bring them Christian and Bill and everyone else or the firm back into the sufferings or the things that folks are going through outside of our first world problems. And I will say like with she builds waves, right, which is my women's initiative in the industry, it helps me then see what our needs or what we need to be responding to in our firm, right? What are the needs or what are women talking about and how can we make sure that in our organization, we're addressing some of those, some of those questions that come up.
0: Yeah. And so for me, I mean, Bola knows this. I go forward constantly. I never look back. I just keep plowing ahead. I whether it's a mistake behind me, uh, I try to learn from it, whatever that might be, in the end, I want to see this company, myself, my family continue to grow. I've always looked at myself as a bit of an outsider in the architecture world. I never quite fit in in architecture school. I always saw it very different. I saw most architecture students, you know, sort of falling in line the way that they were supposed to, and I always came at it from a very different perspective. And that's what's driven me now, kind of taking you know this firm into the the generation that we're in now, and that's what continues to kind of push us forward. So how do we become? I, we were talking about this earlier when we were kind of preparing. You know, I like to be the only architect in the room, right? I don't. Necessarily want to be part of the the organizations that have to do with architecture or construction or real estate. Even though I'm always part of them, I'm happy to participate. It's not always where I want to be. I want to be somewhere where there is no other architect and where there's I can meet other interesting people or other business owners, or other potential clients. And that's where the you know, the idea for the podcast came. You know how do we, and that's kind of why it's called the anti architect, is that don't quite fit in. Uh, and and I always wanted to improve the profession. I do believe that there's a lot in this profession that can be improved. There's amazing people here, as I said earlier, smart, smart people um, that have so much to offer. If we can harness that and begin to change the profession, I think it'll raise you know everybody's level up tremendously.
2: One last question, um, Monograph's favorite closing question. What is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Double promote me.
3: <laughs> That's mine. Um, Christian, one of the kindest things that someone has done, aka Christian, is to put me, to really give me a seat at the table where my voice and opinions matter and I listened to and are implemented, right? The ideas that I have, no matter how crazy or aggressive or what it is, you know where it's listened to and then um, implemented. So the kind, one of the kindest things is him bringing me here.
0: I think the kindest thing for me is—it's a little cheesy—is my my mother always basically told me that you know I was in fact smart, or I was in fact good, or I was in fact I had the ability to change the world and change things and affect people's lives and. Whether I believe that or not, even as a little kid, that always kind of stuck with me, you know, that you can kind of do anything that you want and hard work will get you there.
1: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Christian and Life, for this uh, conversation. Very excited to share it out into the broader community on our podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining in today. All the uh, live attendees, always appreciate that and the questions that come in.
0: Thank you. This was great.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. And I'll just leave with a short little plug for Monograph sponsors of this podcast. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. 300 firms are using Monograph to visually manage their practice operations, streamline their repetitive processes, and empower their team to grow sustainably. In fact, 85% of Monograph reviews say easy, simple, or intuitive. Monograph customers are entering timesheets daily in their browser, to get real-time visuals on project performance. They're reducing their weekly staffing meetings up to 80%, and they're forecasting future billings instantly so that they can run the right proactive business and make the right strategic decisions. Try yourself, start a free trial today at monograph.com or come to the live webinar tomorrow. It's gonna be a live demo that I'm gonna put on 10 a.m. on 10 a.m. California time. Uh, so see you there. And once again, Christian Bolanle and Sylvia, and to the rest of the guests, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: And if you're in New York, if you're tuning into New York. I think Bolanle, you're doing a book launch, a in-person book launch.
3: Yes, in an hour. <laughs> yeah, we are okay. going to be celebrating the launch of the book. Join us at OFS, thirty-first and Broadway. Just come by yourself, not. 200 people, (laughs) but yes, um, I'm really excited for it. and can't wait to celebrate with family, friends, and colleagues very shortly.
1: That's awesome. And Mancini is hiring. Check out the book, check out the firm, check out the podcast, the anti-architect podcast. There's a lot, a lot of homework that everybody has to do after this podcast. So everybody please enjoy your Friday tomorrow. You too.
3: Wonderful. Thank you.
1: Bye now. Bye hey it's chris from monograph thank you so much for joining us here at monograph we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms more than 200 practices are using monograph today to run the business side of architecture you can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our ceo robert ewan get started at monograph.com that's monograph.com talk to you soon